Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Between the United States and Russia, we have still over 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. There's between 13,000 and 14,000 nuclear weapons in the world. Most of them are owned by the United States and Russia. And so we have a unique responsibility to manage those weapons, to lead the world in terms of nonproliferation, and to make sure that they're not used. The nuclear deal with Iran was a really groundbreaking achievement that enhanced the security of Americans and indeed the world. And the question is, you know, whether and how to re-enter that uh, agreement under a Biden administration. What they've done is basically because the U.S. withdrew, they've um, backed off of and stopped implementing some of their commitments under the deal. But they've not, um, to date, they've still let the IAEA continue verifying, which is very important. Do you see any possible path to a deal with North Korea that would either eliminate their nuclear weapons program or cap it in a significant way? We're going to have to start from from the ground up. I'll, I'll also add, of course, you know, our relationship with China is very strained and complicated, and China's a key factor in reaching agreement with North Korea on freezing and hopefully ultimately eliminating its nuclear capability. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
Lynn Rustin runs the Global Nuclear Policy Program at the Nuclear Threat Initiative, the premier nonproliferation program in the world. Prior to joining NTI, Lynn held senior positions in the White House, Department of State, and Congress, including serving as the Senior Director for Arms Control and Nonproliferation on the White House National Security Council staff. Lynn and I just sat down to talk about where we stand on nuclear nonproliferation as the Biden administration takes office. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Lynn, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on our show. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Um, Maybe the place to start, Lynn, is with a little bit of background on you and on the nuclear threat initiative. So let me let me start with you and just ask you, how did you get interested in nuclear nonproliferation and how did you end up spending a good bit of your life devoted to it? Well, it started uh, in college. I went to Oberlin College and came under the tutelage of a man named George Lani who taught Soviet foreign policy, believe it or not. And long story short, I got really interested in um, Soviet politics and foreign policy and went to graduate school in that in the early 80s. Um, And when it was time to look for a job, the jobs were basically either in the intelligence community, in the defense community, or kind of in the specialized field of arms control. And I fell into that out of some combination of both interest and luck. And what, what what was the interest? What was the luck? What, what drew you to it? Well, my, um, my, my first real job was working as a, um, well, I think it was partly, I was interested in the idea. I remember this was in the early eighties when the nuclear freeze uh, movement was uh, active. There was a lot of concern that there could be nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet union. Um, so doing something about that appealed to me and, um, my first First, I was hired at uh, Common Cause, a public interest group, which in those days also was interested in um, kind of advocacy around nuclear issues. And I helped write a primer on nuclear arms control, which was interesting for me because since I didn't know that much about it, I had to research various chapters and then figure out how to explain it to people Mm. who were at the same starting point I was. And then I went on to the Congressional Research Service at the Library of Congress, where I um, researched and wrote on these issues for Congress. And did you, did you ever work with George Tennant who did arms control for the Senate intelligence committee for years? Did you ever run into George? I, I did not. I actually, who I did work for was, um, Mark Lowenthal. I worked with him at the, at the CRS at the library of Congress before he then went on to the house intelligence committee. Yeah. For the listeners who don't know him, Mark is, a is a longtime expert in intelligence analysis and actually all sorts of things. Probably a listener on our show, so we can say a little And a mark. Jeopardy winner. And a Jeopardy winner, that's right. Okay, and then uh, the Nuclear Threat Initiative. So, so tell us about the organization, tell us about its history, its mission, what's it all about? Sure. Um, the Nuclear Threat Initiative is a, a nonprofit, uh, nonpartisan organization dedicated to reducing the risks of uh, nuclear and other catastrophic weapons, weapons of mass destruction and disruption, we like to say, which also refers to cyber. It was started um, 
around the year 2000 or 2001 by former Senator Sam Nunn and Ted Turner, uh, who were its founding uh, co-chairs. It's now co-chaired, and Senator Nunn was the CEO. Now, uh, former Secretary of Energy Ernest Moniz is the CEO and co-chair, along with Senator Nunn and Ted Turner. And what are the kind of things that you guys do to try to meet your mission? Yeah, um, we basically, ultimately, we try to achieve um, systemic change to address these risks through research, analysis, convening, collaborating with international partners, um, as well as domestic partners in government and outside of government to reduce the risk of nuclear use, to reduce um, the threat of proliferation. Other parts of the organization deal with uh, the risk of radiological material. I know you um, interviewed Laura Holgate, right, one right. of my um, colleagues. And of course, we have a very large um, global health security program, which is very focused on preventing pandemics as the one we're in right now. Lynn, do you get, do you get all your money from private sources or does some of it come from public sources as well? Um, NTI does not accept any money from the U.S. government to, um, you know, preserve our independence. We do get a lot of um, funding from private sources, found some of the large foundations and some, you know, individual donors. And we do take uh, money for specific projects from some foreign governments. So, for instance, um, the government of Norway is funding a particular nonproliferation project that I'm involved in right now, just as one example. Okay, so let's Lynn, let's dig into the substance here, and maybe we can start with kind of the big picture, sort of the fifty thousand foot level. How would you characterize the threat that the world faces today from nuclear weapons? Is it growing? Is is it declining? Is it static? How do you think about that? I'm reminded that I think it was sometime in. 2019 that The Economist had a cover story about this. And I think the title was A Complacent World is Playing with Armageddon. So how do you think about where the threat is and how it's evolved? Exactly. And actually, Senator Nunn and Secretary Moniz co-authored an article with a similar theme that was in uh, Foreign Affairs uh, last August as well, basically saying that we are closer to the potential use of a nuclear weapon than we've been since the Cold War. And part of that is because the relations between the nuclear powers, between us and Russia, us and China, are declining, and that the risk of conflict is growing. And at the same time, there's an unprecedented complacency about this. People just aren't focused, including leaders, sufficiently on the risks of these weapons and the risks of miscalculation, the risks that new technologies like cyber can introduce that could lead to blundering into a use of a nuclear weapon in a war that no one wants, would want. And why do you think people are complacent about it? I think we spoke earlier about um, <laughs> the, the Cold War the time when I came out of graduate school in the early 80s, when when people were really worried about the use of war between the United States and the Soviet Union 
it wasn't that earlier when I mean, it was a decade or so before when people were still doing these duck and cover drills right. at school under right. their desk. Right. Um, no one thinks this is going to happen now. But just like no one thought we'd all be sitting at our homes working from home for a year wearing masks because of a pandemic, it's really dangerous to not see the growing risks and address them. So we're not wondering, you know, why we didn't do something earlier. So Lynn, let me ask you about some specific countries here and your thinking on them, your concerns about where we are with them and and most important, you know, what we what you think we need to do as a government and maybe given your program what what our allies you know need to do as well and maybe the place to start is with uh with Russia you know for obvious reasons a country that can you know destroy us with nuclear weapons in a matter of minutes in a country where we've had a long history of arms control agreements where are we now and how do we get to a better place in your view so the trends that I've been talking about in terms of the deterioration of relations between nuclear powers and the rising risks, they've been happening for a long time. But I have to say that the policies uh, during the Trump administration have been an accelerant to these bad trends. Because as you say, between the United States and Russia, we have still over 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. There's between 13,000 and 14,000 nuclear weapons in the world. Most of them are owned by the United States and Russia. And so we have a unique responsibility to manage those weapons, to lead the world in terms of nonproliferation, and to make sure that they're not used. Um, what's happened is all of the architecture of arms control that's really existed since the Cold War to regulate and reduce these weapons has become dismantled, both because of actions that Russia has undertaken, but also because of actions and decisions the Trump administration has taken. And we're now at the point where the only remaining treaty that's regulating and limiting U.S. and Russian nuclear weapons is the New START Treaty. Russia and the United States have agreed to extend a nuclear arms treaty that was born out of the Cold War. Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a law extending the agreement. Um, the treaty is so important. Not only does it limit the number of deployed U.S. and Russian strategic nuclear weapons, but it provides incredible verification, including 18 on-site inspections every year, um, thousands of notifications that go back and forth constantly about the, the location and movement of these systems. And so it really gives each side tremendous insight into what the other side is doing. And it allows you to, you know, to plan, to not do worst case planning. And it, you know, tamps down an arms race. What about, what about Lynn, what about the INF treaty? You know, what's, what's the history of that? What's its current status? How do you think about its importance? You know, is it salvageable? How do you, how do you think about all that? That's a more complicated case. The INF treaty was um, signed between President Reagan and Soviet President uh, Gorbachev. It banned an entire class of weapons, intermediate-ranged ballistic and cruised missiles that were land-based globally deployed. Um, and that basically meant for us uh, in Europe, but um, 
for the Russians everywhere because they, they had them in Asia as well. And this was signed in 1987. Unfortunately, when I was um, in government at the National Security Council, we came to the conclusion that the Russians um, were violating that treaty, that they had developed and deployed missiles in this class. Um, and we went through a long period of trying to resolve this diplomatically with Russia um, without success. I mean, they never conceded um, the violation and came up with a bunch of response measures. And then ultimately, the Trump administration withdrew from the treaty. Um, you can argue whether or not that was the right response or not, but that was what precipitated it. So the treaty is, um, you know, is gone now. It's dead. I mean, it can't be revived without, a, you know, a going through another ratification process. The, there had, the Russians have made an offer of a moratorium of this class of missiles in Europe, and they have recently said, without conceding that the, the missile that the United States thinks is a violation, without conceding that that's a violation, have said that under their, their moratorium proposal, they would remove that missile from the west of the Urals. So to me, that's an interesting proposal that might require or what would merit further exploration, further consideration. Of course, we would want to consult, the United States would have to consult with its allies in Europe. But I think if we could prevent a uh, proliferation and a rearmament of missiles in this class, that would be a very good thing. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Lynn Rustin. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So Lynn, maybe we can shift to talk about North Korea and Iran here a little bit. So at present, there are not effective limitations on either of those two countries' programs. So maybe we can take each of them in turn. What was your view on the nuclear deal with Iran? Um, maybe that's the place to start. Sure. I mean, I think the um, nuclear deal with Iran was a really groundbreaking achievement that enhanced the security of Americans and indeed the world by putting in place um, strict provisions that would keep Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. They don't have nuclear weapons yet, which is different from the North Korea case, um, but they have the capacity to produce material to create a weapon. And the Iran deal put really you know, strict restrictions around around that with incredible verification um, by the uh, IAEA. So we've now, that agreement is now hanging from a head, from a thread because the United States withdrew. Now the other parties 
um, European, you know, the EU, UK, France, Germany, China, and Russia are still parties. And the question is, you know, whether and how to re-enter that uh, agreement under a Biden administration. What's, what's your assessment of the critique of the deal? Do you think it was it was all based on substance, or do you think there were politics involved? How do you think about the the critique of those who oppose the deal, since that opposition was just so strong? Yeah, I mean, part of it is, I mean, there is an ideological, you know, strand of thinking in our country and in the Congress that has some antipathy towards arms control deals in general, um, that's suspicious of them, that feels that on balance, we're better off being un, unconstrained ourselves. I mean, this is a little different than a tradition, than a kind of a deal like with Russia where it's reciprocal, but the idea that we shouldn't be giving things up to get constraints on other countries that we're just better off with a total freedom of action ourselves um, on the Iran deal, which again is not like standard arms control deals with Russia, I think there was a lot of concern about what's not in the deal, um, the things it didn't address, like their ballistic missile programs, their their other disruptive behavior in the region, and that was a, a one concern. Right. And then right. there were also concerns about the duration of some of the limits. But I just want to say it's it's very common for for um, critics of arms control deals, including New START, to criticize, you know, what it doesn't do, but they never, they never, you know, look at the real world choice of the agreement we have versus, you know, not having it. They kind of compare the agreement we got with the sort of mythical agreement people would want that did everything we wanted and, you know, gave no concessions to the other party. And of course, that's not how you reach agreements or have sustainable agreements. So how, how do you think we can get back? Because I think President Biden is going to want to do that. How do we get back to that end of the deal with the Iranians? And um, how hard do you expect that to be given, you know, what is a pretty significant, in my view, political change in Tehran, the strengthening of the hardliners over the past four years? Uh, How, how tough is this going to be, do you think? And let, let me preface, I'll, I'll speak a little to this and then just preface that there are others at NTI who are more uh, expert on, on Iran and, and, and do this issue in more greater depth. But, um, you know, I think it's going to be difficult um, to unwind all the, all the sanctions on, on our part and to then get Iran, you know, back. What they've done is basically because the U.S. withdrew, they've um, backed off of and stopped implementing some of their commitments under the deal. But they've not, um, to date, they've still let the IAEA continue verifying, which is very important. So, you know, it will be possible to to get them to assume the constraints they had assumed initially, um, and, and for the United States to work very closely with its other uh, treaty partners in this um, to try to get back. But I think that's a starting point to then building on that to extend some, you know, extend the limits and 
address some other issues as time has marched on. And the Iranians have a presidential election next year as well, which is going to be, I think, a complicating factor. Exactly. So, Lynn, North Korea, I don't know how many presidents have tried to deal with this issue of North Korea actually having nuclear weapons as opposed to Iran, as you pointed out, which is just developing the capability to do so. Do do you see any possible path to a deal with North Korea that would either eliminate their nuclear weapons program or cap it in a significant way? Well, we certainly have to get back to trying to achieve that outcome. I mean, there's not a single area in terms of nuclear arms control and non-proliferation policy, um, frankly, that isn't in worse shape now than it was at the beginning of the Trump administration. And certainly the North Korea case is exhibit A. You know, North Korea has more fissile material now than it did, and more undoubtedly more nuclear weapons now than it did four years ago. I actually think President Trump's um, willingness to pursue diplomacy with the North Korean leader was, uh, although unorthodox, was was fine to try. But the problem was it wasn't backed up with any serious plan going into it or any serious follow through coming out of it in terms of, you know, organizing a sustained serious negotiation. And so it was just all, you know, photo op diplomacy with, um, with no follow through. And so we're now in a situation where that collapsed. And as I say, the, the, the threat is growing. Our alliances, of course, are badly strained um, with allies in Asia, not to mention in Europe. Um, and so we're going to have to start from, from the ground up. I'll, I'll also add, of course, you know, our relationship with China is very strained right. and complicated. And China is a key factor in reaching agreement with North Korea on, you know, freezing and hopefully ultimately eliminating its nuclear capability. Lynn, to what extent is China the elephant in the room here? And, and, and is there anything we can realistically do about China's nuclear program and the impact that's having on how we think about how we think about other issues in this area? So China's really important, obviously, and addressing its nuclear capabilities in the Asia Pacific is important. But it isn't as big an elephant in the room as the Trump administration made it out to be in that, you know, the United States and Russia each have more than 4,000 nuclear weapons. Russia has more than that. China has two to 300. Um, when the Trump administration tried to condition the extension of the New START treaty with Russia on China joining either that agreement or a future agreement in a trilateral um, arrangement, it was just completely um, unrealistic, really a poison pill. And it only had the effect of ensuring that we didn't get to New START extension under the Trump administration and got us no closer to a serious dialogue with China on nuclear risk reduction and, and strategic stability, which we need to have. So I think that has to happen 
more slowly. We're not going to immediately, you know, jump into a nuclear arms arms control negotiation with China. And partly, I think the United States really needs more homework to do in terms of what is it that we actually want and what are we prepared to give to get it when our forces and interests are so asymmetrical. Um, but I do think, first of all, there's a what's called a P5 dialogue. So that's the recognized nuclear powers, United States, Russia, China, UK, and France, um, who have a special responsibility under the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty to work towards disarmament. We have a, a review conference for that treaty coming up. Um, it's now it's been postponed to the summer of 2021 because of COVID. And the world is really looking toward um, the P5 to show commitment toward reducing nuclear weapons and their reliance on them. And I think it's a really important moment for the Biden administration to show global leadership for the U.S. and Russia to do not just extend New START, but build on that agenda to do more. And then for the, for the P5, to, to continue talking about the circumstances under which they could join in a negotiation um, as well as take intermediate steps. So I think, and then bilaterally, and I really should have said this about Russia too, there really needs to be an intensification of dialogue in military channels, mill-to-mill channels, in diplomatic channels, um, to talk about strategic stability and nuclear risk reduction, both with Russia and with China separately. And do you think we would have an open door in both places if we knocked on it? Well, I think the door is very open with Russia. And, you know, partly that's because we have an established um, history and pattern right. over 50 years of talking about this stuff. I think I think with China... Um, you know, it's a little bit of an open door. I mean, the, the, the P5 dialogue context is kind of is already established, and I think the issue is making it more productive. Um, I think in, in bilateral, you know, this is a piece of a, of a broader set of dialogues that need to go on. Um, you know, they're certainly sending signals now. My read is that, you know, they would like to, not be in as a confrontational, um, you know, situation as as the United States and China appear right now. Um, but it's you know they've never liked to talk about nuclear things in particular. They're very focused on um, secrecy, whereas we think of you know transparency right. as being stabilizing. Right. So it's a it's a it's a process, but it's necessary. So Lynn. Obviously, U.S. leadership is is critical here, right? To getting to getting things done, to furthering the mission that your organization stands for, right? Reducing the risk, and and I just wonder how you think about the health of the U.S. government's capabilities to negotiate and to verify agreements going forward. Have have we lost some of that over time? Does that need to be rebuilt? How do you think about that? Yeah, there's a, a couple of elements. I mean, first of all, we it's really important to have a, a functioning national security interagency process. And I, I worked in the administration under, I mean, in the executive branch under, I think, four administrations, two Republican and two Democrat. 
And in my experience, you know, there's been a functioning national security decision-making process led by the NSC um, where options are developed and considered um, and, you know, raised for decision um, by the, at the highest levels. And then there's a coordinated government approach to implementing them. That has completely broken down in the current administration. Um, I think the capacity is still there, although some agencies, I mean, you know, morale is not just morale is really bad, for instance, at the State Department, but a lot of the, you know, most capable people have left or been forced out. And um, so we need to kind of reconstitute and refresh the, the um you know, the talent in, in agencies, but also the mechanisms of government. And I'm really excited about the team that President-elect Biden is bringing in because they're seasoned national security professionals who know how to, how to do this work, both, you know, within the government and then negotiating. But the other, if I can just add on, there's two other really critical elements. I mean, we've really got to have more cohesion between the executive branch and the Congress on national security and foreign policy. Um, And we also need to repair our alliances uh, in Europe and in Asia as a foundation. Well, I mean, it's full, full stop. We need to do that. Um, And in addition, it's a necessary foundation as we pursue, you know, security policies and arms control and that kind of thing with countries like Russia and China, because you need to do it in coordination with um, and in consultation with allies whose security is directly at stake. Lynn, you have been terrific with your time. If I could just ask you two more questions and we have a couple minutes left here. The first is what, what worries you the most when you think about the threat from nuclear weapons? Is it something that we've already talked about or is it something that, that we've not talked about? Something that we've not explicitly talked about. I think it's the, you know, the finite capacity of human beings to, and policymakers to understand and um, manage the consequences of advances in, in technologies. Mm. Um, and so an example is just the idea of nuclear deterrence um, and, and avoiding a accidental war. I mean, it, it all rests on the ideas that, you know, technology is infallible, information's accurate, um, um, humans don't make mistakes. Um, and, and none of that is true. We know from experience. And so you just worry about at what point will there be a breakdown with a catastrophic consequence. Um, and so when you introduce something like cyber, mm-hmm. um, which can be not, not only from an adversary, but could, could be from a third party. I mean, we have as much interest in the Russian command, nuclear command and control system working properly and not being messed with as we do our own, right? Because we're on the other end of their mistake. Right. So right. that's what I really worry about is the capacity of policymakers to understand and and mitigate the risks of technologies as well as, of course, you know, capturing its many benefits. And the second question, and maybe the answer to the first question is the answer to the second question, but <laughs> if you had a few minutes with President Biden, you know, what's the what's the one 
key point you would want to get across to him about about this issue that you work on and you've worked on your entire your entire professional life? Well, of course he has too. Yes, he has. He knows but, a lot about this. And so, but nonetheless, I'd say you're you're inheriting an incredible mess. You've got COVID, you've got an economy and in, you know, duress. You've got, you know, domestic issues that we need to address, social justice, but in addition, nuclear weapons are inherently presidential. And without your attention and direction, we'll continue to drift in this dangerous, complacent path that we're on. And so I urge you to make this a priority and, you know, set a safer course for our country and the world. Yeah, this is one of the few things that actually um, poses an existential threat to the United States of America. Um, exactly. Not too many other national security issues do. Lynn, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been great to have you. Really great conversation about a complex issue that people need to pay more attention to. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was really great to talk to you. That was Lynn Rustin. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.